everyone, it's Aviva Rumani, and this is Kindred Cast, unfiltered conversations with the business and cultural leaders who shape the world we live in. Kindred Cast is a production of Kindred Media, powered by Lion Tree, the global investment and merchant bank. For more insightful content, including our podcasts, newsletters, and events, and to get in touch with us, search for Kindred Media wherever you're listening to this. Hi, I'm Antel Ronneboom with Lion Tree in San Francisco. Today, we're thrilled to be joined by Zillow co-founder and CEO Rich Barton. Rich co-founded Zillow in 2005 and served as CEO until 2010, when he became the company's executive chairman. Rich then returned to CEO of Zillow in early 2019. Prior to Zillow, Rich founded Expedia within Microsoft in 1994 and successfully spun it out as a public company in 1999. He also co-founded and served as non-executive chairman of Glassdoor from 2007 to 2018. Our conversation with Rich today will cover, amongst others, his journey and motivations as an entrepreneur, the foundations and opportunity for Zillow, and Zillow's innovative approach to the future of work. And then we'll also ask some other questions as we close. Rich, thank you so much for joining us today. Great to be here, Antal. Fantastic. Perhaps we can start in the beginnings. You've started three enduring and category-defining companies, all of which made it easier for consumers to access information and make their own decisions, whether across travel, jobs, and housing. Let's start briefly by exploring the foundations of what led you to this point. What was it that first got you interested in technology? And what specifically set you on a path of consumer innovation? I was one of those kids who liked to do a whole lot of things, but that included geeky things too. I guess I was kind of a closet geek in junior high school and high school. I was in junior high school when the TRS-80 came out, that Radio Shack computer. I had one. I also got a Commodore 64, which came out shortly thereafter. And I was just one of those kids who loved to figure out the way things worked and to play the games and to see what I could build with them. My technology interest dates back to as long as I can remember. I think as well, I always knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I was the ice cream man when I was 16. I had my own external house painting company for several years. I liked to be my own boss. And it turns out I came of age. The personal computer really went from a curiosity to a must-have. And I was lucky enough to find myself at Stanford in the mid-80s and the late 80s where I got an engineering degree. And Stanford just from geography and luck and planning, ended up to be at the epicenter of what became Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. So it was a very natural thing for me to move from being at Stanford as an undergrad to end up at Microsoft. I was always pretty interested in sticking it to the man too and revolution. And it was clear to me that technology was going to change the world when it got in the hands of the people and the people were going to get armed and they were going to storm the Bastille and tear down all these old structures. And really the kind of business opportunity for what that might enable also got me pretty fired up. I read in advance of this podcast today that the Apple Super Bowl ad in 1984 had a profound impact on you. Really? I mean, for the listeners out there who don't know what that ad was, I think it's pretty much considered the most famous television ad of all time created by Steve Jobs and I think Wyden and Kennedy as well. It ran once during the Super Bowl in 1984. 
And it was the launch of Macintosh, the first Mac, basically. It really, really fired me up. It was this dystopian thing. Ridley Scott, who did Blade Runner and lots of other really interesting vibey movies, did the ad. It was shot in this kind of weird dystopian future where everybody was kind of an automaton looking at a giant screen with a big white guy's head speaking at them, and they were all nodding. And in comes this very colorful, buff, Olympic woman with this huge hammer and she runs through the auditorium and throws the hammer and shatters the big head. And basically there's light. <laughs> and basically that's the launch of the Mac. <laughs> anyway, I think the tagline was something like on whatever, such and such a date, January 28th, Macintosh will show you why 1984 will not be like 1984 in a reference to George Orwell. <laughs> I was a kid and I was like, yes. I remember it as well. And it was pretty profound at the time. It definitely set the stage for a long cycle of heightened innovation thereafter. And anybody who's curious, just go out on YouTube. It's there. It's fun to watch, actually. Yeah. Tell us a little bit more about your first experiences as an entrepreneur and how that went. You mentioned a couple of examples earlier on. What were some of the early takeaways from your early experiments with entrepreneurship? Well, I learned a lesson that I then must have unlearned and had to learn again. But one of the early lessons I learned as the ice cream man I had the ice cream truck. I was in New Canaan, Connecticut, outside a kind of suburb of New York City. And I rented the truck and I had to fund my own inventory of ice cream. So I used my money to buy all my ice cream inventory. And then I'd drive around New Canaan and Darien, Connecticut, which was my territory, and sell ice cream to kids and more adults than you'd think. The hard lesson I learned was just how much capital you had to tie up in inventory and how valuable that inventory was. And I was the ice cream man for like 10 weeks or something during the summer. And I was negative. I was in the red really for eight and a half of those 10 weeks. Wow. It was only in the last week and a half, two weeks that I made a bunch of money. And it was kind of the difference between a good business and a bad business. And so many businesses that require physical inventory of things are like that. I learned a lesson about one of the powerful things about being in digital businesses that have little to no cost of goods sold, COGS, and what immense liberation and flexibility and leverage you get from having a high margin business model. And I've pretty much stuck with that the rest of my career, though there have been a couple of painful exceptions to that. When you joined Microsoft, you joined the team that was working on the Microsoft OS or MS-DOS at a moment of pretty unprecedented change in the tech industry. I remember it as well. And it was a profound couple of years where suddenly you went from not being able to find information on the web to suddenly having Netscape and Mosaic. And the beginnings of being able to search as a consumer were all there. At that time, your first company was born in this moment on the thesis that technology that travel agents were using to book travel could potentially be used directly by the consumer to book online travel. Tell us a bit about how the idea for Expedia came about and what it took to successfully launch and scale this business. In particular, why was that the right moment to innovate around the way that you could book online travel? Like so many businesses for so many entrepreneurs, Expedia was born of personal frustration with the world around me and the way things worked. I was a young product manager at Microsoft. I was traveling all over talking to PC user groups about MS-DOS 5. I had to book travel through the company travel agent. And I became very frustrated with my 
travel experiences and my travel service experiences and my access to information. And so, I mean, I literally remember talking with the corporate travel agent at Microsoft and listening to her type on a keyboard. I knew she was looking at a computer and I'm sitting at a desk. I have a computer and I remember thinking, why can't I just jump through the phone, turn her computer to me and do it myself? I knew I could get a better result probably than she could because she didn't have enough time and I cared a lot. So it was kind of born of frustration. It seemed like a pretty obvious thing that if databases ran the travel business, that those databases would eventually get punched open and the walls would get broken down and consumers would be able to flood into that. The time was right. So in hindsight, this power to the people idea, kind of a sure thing in my book. I've played that play many times in many different industries. It's like, betting on consumer empowerment and information being more broadly distributed and prices being more fair and transparent. These are good bets. It happened at a really important period of time because it was actually the transition to the graphical web. We started the project before the graphical web, before Netscape and Mosaic. We were building an MSN. Online services predated the web, for those out there who don't know this. Uh, CompuServe, Prodigy, AOL, and MSN, Microsoft Network, was originally a proprietary network. We luckily had great leadership and great team members in our little Expedia team. Even though the company strategy line was to build the proprietary app on our proprietary Microsoft platform, we really early on saw the writing on the wall and knew that having access to everybody was going to be way more interested than just the people on that platform. And we started moving all the interesting components of Expedia to the server, to the cloud, rather than to the client. This enabled us to really quickly pivot from being a proprietary app at Expedia to a web app post Netscape. We were one of the very first Microsoft products to actually be on the web. And it happened right as the graphical web, as we know it now, was born. It was fortuitous. We built a great product. It was a great idea. We had a great team, but it was really good timing too. What's also interesting when I look back at that part of your career is that there are a few companies in technology over the years, whether you think about a Microsoft or an IEC with Barry Diller, who have done a great job of incubating businesses and then growing them internally and then ultimately spinning them out. It's a unique model and some have made that a serial model. You obviously had to convince Bill Gates, Steve Ballmer, Nathan Mirvold, and others to back this venture internally within Microsoft. And I'm just curious how that experience was of convincing senior management to make a bet on a new technology and then to do it and build it in a corporation that had many other priorities. Yeah. Microsoft was an incredible place for me to get an education, a corporate education and a tech education. And one of the great hallmarks of Microsoft is an encouragement to take big swings to really think big and dream big. And by the way, even when I was at Microsoft, the numbers were pretty big, even though they're small compared to today. And so you had to have a big idea. You couldn't have a small idea and have it matter anyway. When I originally pitched the idea for Expedia to Bill Gates, I do think of him as my venture capitalist. And he was super stoked right from the start. He himself is a technology disruptor. He loved that aspect of it. He really loved that mainframes ran the travel industry at the time and kind of still do. Shh, don't tell anybody. But those big red systems are IBM mainframes, or they were for a long time. And at the time, Microsoft was trying to prove that Windows plus NT could replace mainframes as industrial strength, scalable, high security server platform. 
And so he also loved the aspect of it that we could rewrite a res system on NT. Windows NT was an operating system for those of you out there who didn't know. Anyway, I had a lot of support. I pitched it from the start to be spun out. I said, do it. It's not a Microsoft business. It's going to be a travel business. It's not a software business. When Bill laughed at me and said, why don't you build it here? and We'll see what happens. I'm sure he didn't think I was serious way, but I held him to it. And I had great support. My boss was Balmer at the time we spun it out and Balmer was psyched too. But it's hard to get stuff out of a place like Microsoft. And I would say the key to getting it outside of Microsoft was the then young Microsoft CFO who was a friend of mine named Greg Maffei, who Arya and you guys know really well. He's now the CEO of Liberty, amongst many other things. <laughs> Formula One, Sirius, Curate, you name it. I was young. I was only 30 years old, 31 years old at the time. And he was maybe 10 years older than I, maybe not quite that much. He was a young CFO of Microsoft, and he was really psyched about this experiment too. And so I asked him if he would be the chairman of the spun out Expedia, and he thought that was cool. And therefore, it's a lesson in kind of how to get stuff done inside of a big organization is to try to make allies out of the critical people. Greg became an ally then. I'm on multiple boards with him today. We're very close friends, and that worked very well. That's another thing I noticed is that you've kept a lot of the core people that you've worked with and your team. They've they've permeated through the various opportunities that you've worked. But how important has that been to the overall success of the various ventures you've started? And I think for those listeners out there who are earlier in their careers, I can't emphasize enough how important to your career building and nurturing your network is. I mean, I think in the modern age, people view networking as this kind of digital thing and social networks and LinkedIn and whatever enable you to have what looks like a giant network. But if it's a bunch of low quality, weak bonds, it's not worth much. The strongest bonds come from the folks you're working with and working for and work for you. The other people inside of your organizations who have nothing to do with you, but who touch you in some way because they're providing a support function or you're providing a support function for them. Nurture those relationships, learn from them. I think that my extended, I'll call it the Microsoft and Expedia diaspora, has been the source of pretty much all of the business stuff, most all of the business stuff that I've done in my career. Started multiple companies with Expedia and Microsoft alums, still sit on boards with many of them. I'm looking around my Zillow office right now. Several of the most senior folks here with me at Zillow, including my co-founder Lloyd Frank and our CTO, David Vitel and Kristen Ack and Christopher Roberts. We have a long list of people who are all people we hired at Expedia <laughs> when we were back at Microsoft. So anyway, I do encourage everyone. I'm not sure if that's the kind of audience you have for your podcast, Antal, but I'm sure there's some of that. Nurturing that network is important. Fantastic. So the secret ingredient to success is obviously your why. And turning on the lights for people has long been your passion, as we've seen, and the driving factor behind the companies you've created. What's your secret sauce, your why for what you do? My why for what I do? I really love building stuff and building stuff with great people that I love. Building stuff that empowers people is pretty exciting. It's taking a big adventure to the top of a mountain that'll feel really good when you're standing on top of. And it's fun to dream about being there. And it's fun to look at in the distance. And it's fun when you summit it. I can't ask for much more than that. I do think it's important to build a culture along the way 
that has great esprit de corps, that the folks who are on this adventure with you really feel a part of it. They feel ownership in it. They're engaged in it and they love and support each other because that's what gets you through the hard times. That feeling of being a part of a team doing something important, I guess, is my why. I also like to keep my work and my non-work to the greatest extent possible in as much balance as I can. I have a lot of other stuff that I like to do as well and an amazing family and three great kids. Early in my career, I hadn't quite figured out how to make sure I prioritized my family, friends, and myself relative to work. But as I've matured, I've gained experience, and I have been much better at it. What is the trick from your perspective to balancing a family and what is a very busy set of work priorities that you have? Yeah, I think number one is having a great team that you trust and that you don't just trust, but you actually let them lead. One of the great leadership development techniques, if you have the right people and you know what the plan is and you have the right people to execute that plan is to actually disappear. And when you disappear and are really unavailable, guess what? People figure out how to get stuff done and leaders are made in times where they have to do it. So it's a combination of a great team and actually unplugging. Well said. Well said. We're going to turn the page to, to Zillow. Today, Zillow is over 15 years old, a little bit older than that. And it's the number one real estate portal in the U.S. market with over 235 million monthly active users as of Q3 2022. Zillow has become synonymous with residential real estate search, as we know. And you've helped over 4 million people in their home buying journey over the last year. And over a million four people have sought a premier agent on their home buying journey. And interestingly enough, and we'll talk about this more later, you've had close to 400,000 people in some way transact with Zillow over the last year as well. This year, you're on track to generate revenue of about $2 billion, excluding the discontinued operations and iBuying. However, importantly, as we'll hear more about in a moment, Zillow is again on an expansive path to simplify the end-to-end home buying and selling journey based around your new super app vision, which you've talked about over the last year or so. Tell us a little bit about what the real estate search experience looked like when you first launched Zillow. And what did you see as the opportunity at the time? And how were you positioned at the time versus competitors? It was interesting to me that back when we hatched Expedia in early mid-90s at Microsoft, actually, we had a lot of ideas back then about what other verticals were going to benefit from consumer transparency and power to the people and turning on the lights, as you said. And it was pretty obvious to me back then that residential real estate was going to be one of those vertical industries that was going to be revolutionized as well. I wrote a plan for that that ended up as something called Home Advisor at Microsoft that I didn't run. But when we sold Expedia to Barry Dillers, IAC, in 03-ish, after we were public and I was casting about for the next thing to do, my Zillow co-founder, Lloyd Frank, and I were both in kind of family expansion mode at the time. So we were having kids and we were shopping for homes. And it was pretty surprising to us that nine years after the launch of Netscape, we really couldn't find good real estate information online. It was really hard to even find what was for sale, not to mention what the price was, what the pictures were, even what the address was. Address seems like a pretty important piece of data when one is shopping for a home. So we were having to like literally call real estate agents, 
get data, assemble our own spreadsheets, and then begin to try to figure out what something was worth, what we should bid on it. We didn't want to just have to rely on the word of an advisor. We were just the kind of spreadsheet geek people that wanted to have the data for ourselves. That is actually how Zillow was born. It was basically born of this necessity that we saw for a huge opportunity to bring more of this information into the hands of home shoppers. We also knew that home shopping is entertainment, kind of like travel shopping. One of the things I loved about the, the Expedia and the travel category was just how much people love to shop. Not everybody, but a lot of travel you really love to shop for because it's aspirational and it's dreamy and you get to think about the amazing times you're going to have and experience new places and cultures and people love it. Well, it's actually a very similar thing with home shopping. Home shopping is entertainment for a lot of people. And so I knew that if we could build an amazingly entertaining product and couple it with a really interesting set of practical benefits, that we'd be onto something that would kind of sell itself, that we wouldn't have to invest too much in the brand. When we discovered the Zestimate, we knew we were onto something important. Yeah. Yeah. We knew that that was going to be a game changer. You launched with the Zestimate back in 2006. Yeah. This is obviously people's most prized and valuable asset for most consumers. And at the same time, it's also an item of value that, that changes over time. And one of the things that's been very interesting and profound about Zillow is how significant your audience has become and how people come back very regularly to check on their house prices, but also to check on other things. So you built a very consumer-friendly proposition. How important was the estimate and the ability to have real-time or near-real-time price guidance, not just on homes that were for sale, but also on other homes, the home you might own, in terms of creating the Zillow platform brand? I mean, critical, inseparable. Like We wouldn't have shipped it if we didn't have this estimate. In fact, it was the only feature we had when we launched. And we only had it on about 35 million homes, not the 110 million homes that are actually in the country. And still, the site tipped over for its first two days because so many millions of people showed up to try to seize estimates. It kind of intermingled the practical with the voyeuristic, and we didn't have to invest much in the brand because it just took off like wildfire. The industry was provoked by it, which is a good and a bad thing mostly a good thing. People were provoked by it. It very well captured what we wanted the brand to be, which was a brand that was for consumers, a brand that empowered consumers so that they could voyeur, yes, but ultimately to make this really super important decision in their lives about buying a home. It wasn't until two or three years later that we even added for sale listings to the site. So this estimate was the critical feature. And we added lots of stuff rapidly over time, of course. And then mobile came along, and that was a total game changer. We had Steve Jobs demoing the Zillow app on stage at one of the Apple launch conferences. That was a major, major gamble that we took. We knew Zillow was cool on a desktop, but it would be 10 times as cool in mobile. So we went through that era. We got public on that. And now the next era is about not just transforming the shopping process, but actually getting into the workflow of the transaction itself, really now changing the industry and the transaction rather than just the shopping for it. Yeah. You were also one of the first to really introduce a cool and dynamic mobile map to be able to find homes as you were sort of driving through neighborhoods and so forth. There was one other thing that was different, I think, about the U.S. market that I'd love to get your thoughts on. Basically, the U.S. market is somewhat unique in that you've got 
a multiple listing service in all of the different communities and DMAs, which makes data fairly freely available. At the same time, the U.S. is also unique in that in real estate, there's both a buy side and sell side commission structure, which is not prevalent in places like Europe and Australia and other big markets. I'm curious how that structure of the industry impacted your um, market entry strategy and also your business model. And ultimately, from what we can discern, right, it ultimately led to the premier agent model. But it's a bit different than how you might start a business like this in Europe or Australia, for example. So it'd be interesting for you to comment maybe on that. At Expedia, we were global, so we had aspirations to be global with Zillow as well. However, the United States is nearly unique in the fact that home transactions and their prices and addresses are a matter of public record in almost all counties in the U.S., whereas in the rest of the world, it's generally not. That public records information was the basis of our estimate. We couldn't figure out how to get access to that data in an affordable way, at least in the rest of the world, and the opportunity was so great in the U.S., the availability of that data was the differentiator for us in our market entry. We had no idea when we raised money from Benchmark Capital and from Technology Crossover Ventures, my friends Bill Gurley and Jay Hogue, respectively, at those two places. Lloyd and I did the A round ourselves, but the next round, Bill and Jay led, both of whom I knew from before. When we did it, If we went back and looked at the deck or the conversations that we had back then, it would have been a pretty appalling lack of knowing what our ultimate business model would be. But it was okay because we were building something that was attracting millions and then tens of millions of users on a monthly basis. When you're starting a business or looking to fund a startup, you want a big pond and you want great fishermen, okay? So clearly, the U.S. real estate market was a big, big pond, so big TAM, total addressable market. And we had a good team of fishermen as well, and that was the bet they were making. So our bet was that build a great big giant audience and then figure out how to monetize down the road, which is actually, I'd say we're still trying to figure it out. We had an opportunity to chat back in 2019, I remember it well in your office, when you just launched Zillow Offers, I think the second time, but in a broader way. And that bet obviously dramatically shifted your business model and required you know, significant investment. Now you were in the housing inventory business, at least for short-term periods of time. You then made a pretty enormous decision to exit this opportunity in late 2021, which turned out from where we're sitting now to be an importantly prescient decision that got you out of holding inventory at a point where you're know, going into a market downturn and where rates you know, obviously are increasing the holding costs of all these homes that are sitting on balance sheet. Can you take us through the decision to first buy homes on your balance sheet as a way of entering and capturing transactional real estate time, right? which was the, really the goal? And then what then provided you with the conviction to fairly rapidly exit the iBuying business and ultimately further down the road, partner with Opendoor on more of an asset light type model for Silo customers in what's now your seller services strategy? I found it to be a pretty amazing first bet and then a very timely decision to decide it wasn't working. So I'd be curious is what your look back is on this and what are some of the takeaways are. My top line summary is I think what investors should want out of progressive growth companies, innovative companies, is for leadership to be empowered to take big swings. It's too often as companies mature, including in tech, 
they mature into a state of playing defense all the time rather than continuing to play offense. People don't want to take a big swing and miss for fear of getting fired or having shareholders get crazed. It's that same kind of entrepreneurial drive that had us light up our entry into the iBuying space. And it was that same kind of courageous leadership and entrepreneurial leadership that got us to say, this doesn't work for us. And to not just let it bleed out slowly, but to fold up our tent as quickly as we could and in as orderly a fashion. It was literally home flipping has been around since there were homes, but it's been kind of a marginal, a little bit sketchy, a little bit predatory business in a lot of cases where not such reputable folks come in and offer low ball for people who are in distress. But along came Open Door, and they had a dream of institutionalizing it. And they still do have that dream, and they're executing it, institutionalizing it and systematizing it. And they also were pretty outspoken about how they were saying they were going to take the bulk of the transactional market share and then take the marketplace private and not allow others to play in the marketplace. And they were kind of outspoken about that. And so we saw it as both a, an existential threat and a giant opportunity for us, given that our customer acquisition costs would be near zero, given we have everybody on Zillow. Also, it was kind of coupled with free capital. It's hard to remember those days now, but it was only a year ago. But capital was highly abundant and basically free. Free capital can fuel big, big, big dreams. So we took the opportunity to take a really big swing. Right from the gate, we said, we will not bet the company on this, but we will take a big bet. But we took a big bet on it pre-COVID. It was really working. You know, customers love to get cash for their homes. However, COVID hit and then things started happening in the housing market that the model said was not possible based on history. And we were like, huh, that's not good. We have a lot of capital at risk and we want to grow to be 100x what we are now. And we already have a lot of capital at risk. And if we have to be 100 times that, it's going to get really ugly. And so we started to recalculate our spreadsheets with the new risk assumptions. And it just became apparent by mid, late 2021 that... With the new risk assumptions, we were not willing to turn the company into basically a leveraged residential real estate hedge fund. So we said, that's not for us. We have a great, big, profitable core business. We were only addressing a pretty narrow number of customers, it turned out anyway. It didn't turn out to be the majority. So in a very humane way, wound down the business pretty quickly and turned our attention back to the broader market of all movers and are really happy with that decision and with our position today. It was also important because it was the first time that you were really focused on the sell side of the transaction, which brings us to where you are today, which is the housing super app vision, where you're not just focused on buy side, you're also focused on the sell side. You've done some very interesting acquisitions, including showing time, and you're now in the 3D virtual tours business as well, and purchase mortgages and seller services, which is also still how do you sell your home if you've bought a new home. Right. You've said publicly also that the goal is, at least by 2025, to double your transactional market share in the U.S. market driven by this super app vision. It'd be interesting to hear a little bit about how things like the virtual tours the Showtime asset, which allows you to basically schedule tours online and also how your new mortgage and rentals and seller service businesses are going to contribute to achieving this goal and why it's so important for Zillow. 
Yeah. And I'll tell you why I'm so excited about it too. So starting at the highest level, most everybody who's moving comes to Zillow or in New York City Street Easy, which is a Zillow company. From a shopping and browsing perspective, we have most everybody on deck. And yet we monetize, we estimate only 3% of the home transactions that happen in the market today. And we've done that because what as I said before, we kind of built audience and wow product first and are trying to figure out how to monetize it later. And we're peeling bit by bit. iBuying was just another attempt. Bit by bit, we're trying to figure out what are the monetization things that are going to stick. We have been connecting people with real estate agents for quite a long time, and that's funded our primary business model today. Several years ago, we started saying, well, we're going to fundamentally have to address the workflow in the moving system if we're going to ultimately get this great integrated mover experience. And so we started buying assets that would knock down all the pain points in the moving process. Selling your home for cash was just one of those things that we were playing with. But it starts as early as having a really, really rich, immersive shopping experience with 3D and floor plans. And so Eight years ago, we started investing massive amounts of money internally on R&D to build our own really immersive 3D shopping experience. That's going extremely well. Last year, we bought the biggest home touring reservation system. So think OpenTable or Resi, but kind of a non-digital version of that. So we bought Showing Time and are now systematically digitizing that such that booking a home tour that you're interested in is like booking a Resi for a restaurant reservation. We're a long way from achieving that dream, but we've made all these great steps along the way. That keeps people in the ecosystem. We're building out a digital mortgage product, Zilla Home Loans, because we know that payments are just part of the transaction. And while people really want to get the best rate and get it from somebody they trust, what they really want to have it is just integrated into the process so it doesn't hold things up. They don't dream about the mortgage. They dream about the house. They just want the mortgage to work. So we're making the mortgage work. And we have many other components as well that I could walk through all the way through document routing. We have the biggest electronic document signing and routing system in the real estate industry as well. So we're knocking off all these problems. Our opportunity is to ultimately take our transaction share from that really, really pathetic, embarrassing 3% penetration to what we've said to investors is by 2025, we can see 6% penetration. And then that will be just a stepping stone to a much larger, what I would think of as our fair share, which is much closer to what our audience share is. So we have a lot of wood to chop ahead of us and a lot of great consumer experiences to build and a lot of problems to solve. It's exciting. Some of this is also really interesting because for your premier agents, your largest and most important customers, you're also giving them more and more tools in the case of integrating showing time and virtual tours that get them even closer to a real lead, a real decision by the consumer to buy that home. And increasingly, you're getting closer and closer to being in the middle of that decision. And not just for premier agents. We're doing a whole lot for premier agents. They're directly purchasing customer leads from us that we want to keep in our system electronically. But We also provide these tools to the broader real estate industry as well. The RMX, the 3D and floor plan, immersive shopping stuff, we provide to the whole industry. The showing time product we provide to the whole industry. Dot Loop, which is the document routing thing we provide to the whole industry. So we really see an opportunity to re-platform what is actually the largest industry in the country. 
an industry that has been woefully underinvested in from a technology perspective for a number of interesting reasons for another conversation. But it is a really big opportunity for us as the leading R&D spender in this giant industry. Interesting. One follow-up on this point is you've also put out there some financial goals for Zillow in three years, which are $2.5 billion in revenue. But what stands out to me is that there's also a 45% EBITDA margin target. This is one of the few questions we'll get into financials, but that's quite a bit of further margin expansion potential that's being driven by the super app vision. Can you talk a little bit about how that's still possible? What takes you further to be even more profitable in the years ahead? Well, the big driver of growth going forward is going to be that increased penetration. We care more about atomic or absolute profit than we do about percentage profit. But inherently, what we're doing is largely media and software. And media and software have, as you well know, (laughs) inherently wonderfully high margins. And additionally, we have historically not had to spend that much on advertising and marketing because we've done such an amazing job with the brand and the product over 15, 16 years. And we have everybody coming already. So we haven't had to utilize that much. We haven't had to spend that much, which ends up lowering margins. So to your question, look, if you look back in our quarterly financials, we've had quarters where we flashed EBITDA margin levels over 40% already. We're going through a period of skinnier margins right now, largely because of macro and transition to our new play. We are highly confident that we'll see leverage in this business model in the medium to long term, if not before. Now, tough to adjust too much, tough to fight the weather. It's bad weather out right now in housing macro. Macro macro is tough. Housing macro is really tough. Anybody out there who's trying to buy a home right now knows that. It's hard. It's a lot less affordable today than it was even six months ago to buy a home. I've seen a lot of cycles on Tal, and those who are looking at me know I'm an experienced person, shall we say. I've seen a lot of cycles, and I tend to love these tide-going-out pullback scenarios. It takes a lot of the garbage out to sea. We're standing firm on a fortress balance sheet, really, with billions of dollars of cash on our balance sheet and a profitable business. Having all the garbage get washed out, you every once in a while come and show me the little bits on the shore that are wriggling, and maybe we buy one or two. We'll see. But this is a time for us to actually really gain in our position as a company and as a brand and as a business. I think you've answered my question on the housing market. As you think about the future, right? So 2030, we're sitting here talking about how the industry's changed and evolved. One of the interesting questions is, can you at that point buy a house in days, not weeks or months? How will this digital experience of buying a home be different? And where will Zillow sit in the industry? We've talked once before that ultimately housing could become a market like the stock exchange for equities. But what does Zillow look like in 2030? that's different today. I do think a lot of the sticking points, the friction points in all this workflow that slow the process down, gum it up, make it expensive, what we're doing is going to grease that whole process and streamline that process and integrate that process. Our dream is to get people over what we call the chasm of despair, which is the move. There are a lot of nasties down in the chasm of despair that are going to bite you and make you sad and make you cry. And we have this beautiful bridge that goes over the chasm and we're trying to build that bridge to get you to the promised sunshiny new home on the other side, which is really where you want to be with your family. 
So making it easier, making it faster, making it all integrated onto your phone or whatever your phone becomes in 10 years, but it'll probably be a phone and have that phone be connected to all the other folks who have to be part of this. It's like a big general contractor process where you have to be the program manager. You have to be the general contractor for your own move. And we're going to be your magic assistant in that process where everything comes together on one deck. We hope to be a much bigger company. We know we'll be a much bigger company then. We really care about our brand. We really care about consumer empowerment and trust. And we really care about building the kind of company that people want to work for, that is a healthy place to work, a productive place to work, a supportive place to work, but also a place where we get cool stuff done. Excellent. Moving to one uh, other topic that's, I think, close to your heart is the future of work where you've been an innovator during the pandemic with your Cloud HQ approach. You committed to fully flexible working model in 2020. And today you have many more employees than you did at the start of the pandemic. And I think notably you have employees in every US state. You're a product of a generation of professionals and entrepreneurs that have valued the in-office experience and the traditional way of working. Can you talk a little bit about how your perspectives have changed? And then also, what is the Cloud HQ for Zillow? And what does it look like? And where are the, the efficiencies and challenges? Most important, I guess, to finish off on is what has it done in terms of the quality of candidates you're able to hire and the diversity of the company? I don't say remote work. I don't like the word remote. Nobody wants to really be remote except for short periods of recharge time do you want to be remote. Most people function much better when they are part of a team. We call it Cloud HQ, Cloud Headquarters, because a lot of it is done when you can be wherever you want, but a lot of it happens when we're together as well. And so we're trying to craft what the future of that Cloud HQ, what that culture means and how we accomplish all the difficult stuff that we're all aware of that's harder to do when people are more distributed. The call we made back in probably May of 2020, so very early in the pandemic, when it was clear we were all working on Zoom already and it was working just fine, people in New York City and San Francisco, young employees started asking me, well, my department's coming up. Can I move back to Cincinnati and try to help my folks out? What should I do? Do I need to be near the office? And at that point, we were like, oh, it's going to be another couple months, another three months, and we'll all be back. And we made a pretty courageous decision early on. And we said, no, go ahead and move. It won't harm your career. We will not make you come back to a big city. So we kind of burned the ships right then pretty early. We didn't burn the ships completely. We kept the office space and started playing with different office space design. But we kind of foresaw the hokey pokey that most companies are still going through, which is kind of one foot in, one foot out, back and forth, come back, go away, you know, uprising. We haven't had to deal with most of that stuff that most companies have had to deal with because we just were quite decisive pretty early in this process. That served us well. We're a little bit ahead because of that. We have a much broader hiring pool. When you cast a bigger net, when you cast a wider net, you can catch a lot more fish and you can catch a lot more of the fish you want. They don't have to live in one of three places that happen to be more homogeneous type places and very expensive places. New York, San Francisco, Seattle, all very expensive places to live and aren't necessarily representing the diversity of the country, the diversity of our partners, and the diversity of our customers. Since then, we've seen all of the diversity metrics go way up, which is fantastic and is leading to better products and better services we're providing. I can't tell you how 
happy I am that we made this decision and yet how focused I am on making sure we craft the winning Cloud HQ culture on a go-forward basis. One last question and then we'll wrap up. And the question goes back to your history as an entrepreneur. Again, you've started businesses in the consumer space, information-led businesses. If you could start a new business today, what are the categories of markets that most intrigue you? Oh, the prospect of starting more businesses on Tal, it's it's frightening, (laughs) but I have done it a lot. I've been really lucky and I've been blessed with a great network. The stuff that I find myself reading for fun from a business perspective and a tech perspective, I do think that the green tech stuff is fascinating. And I think the whole world is going to be replatformed. There's going to be a new energy platform for the whole world. I think the biggest companies ever created are going to be created in the next 15 years based on that. So I'm pretty psyched about that. My kids, my one engineer kid who's super interested in it too, and all his friends are too. I'm involved with Stanford. I'm on the board of trustees there at Stanford. We just started the first new school at Stanford in the last 70 years, which is the Stanford Door School of Sustainability. Every kid wants to go to this school of sustainability now. So it's like a really, really interesting area with, no pun intended, a lot of energy behind it. I'm pretty excited about that. And there's some great investors doing awesome things in that space. Another one is obvious, but the health tech stuff is fascinating to me as well. It just seems like health tech is accelerating, not decelerating on so many interesting new dimensions. And so I don't spend a lot of time in it, but philanthropically, I'm pretty interested in it. And so I do spend some. I think there are massive business opportunities in health tech too. Obviously, space tech and AI, and there are all kinds of other things too, but they're not as interesting to me. And I suspect the moments of consumer innovation and access to information are also still in front of us in some of these categories. I think that'll be an evergreen one, Antal. People want to be free. Information wants to be free. We want more control. And that's just a game. That's just going to persist, basically, I think. Yeah. Rich Barton, thank you so much for joining us today on KindredCast. We very much appreciate it. Great to be here, Antal. Thanks a lot. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed our show today. If you want to check out any prior episodes, find us and subscribe at Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Feel free to leave a review as well as it helps people find the show. You can also follow us on social media at KindredCast for behind the scenes photos and info. Listen to KindredCast on SiriusXM every Saturday and Sunday at 2 p.m. Eastern on Business Radio Channel 132 or stream shows on demand in the SiriusXM app. Thank you.